Ah, summer. The best time of the year usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there was another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. At IKEA, everyone can have lounge chair access. No reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, they have all of the essentials that you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am all in. I am all in with Scott Patterson, an iHeartRadio podcast. Hey, everybody, Scott Patterson, I am all in podcast, 111 Productions, iHeartRadio. We've got one on one interview with two very distinguished women. So it's really a two on one, a one on two interview uh, with Lara Stache. And Rachel Davidson, and they are notable in that uh, Lara's assistant professor in the Division of Communication, Visual and Performing Arts at Governor State University and writes about gender rhetoric, popular culture. She's an author of Breaking Bad, A Cultural History, uh, Rowan and Littlefield, 2017. Rachel Davidson is assistant professor in the Department of Communication at Hanover College, a research Broadly addresses rhetoric, rhetoric and popular culture with interest in motherhood, caregiving, and social advocacy. But they wrote a book. They got together. They wrote a book called Gilmore Girls, A Cultural History. Uh, it's no longer just a cult classic. Gilmore Girls is a cultural staple for TV fans. Um, so this is going to be... Okay, so in Gilmore Girls, uh, A Cultural History... Uh, the authors offer an engaging analysis of popular se- of the popular series. The author ex- examine how the show serves as a representation of American culture. Politics reflects complexity within multiple mother daughter dynamics and and employed literature, mu- movies, music, and a lot of cultural stuff that really smart academic ladies say. <laughs> so we've got them on. Thank you for coming on, ladies. Thank you for having us. Uh, we're very, very excited. So tell us about the book itself, how it got started, how you two came up with the idea. 
I started watching Gilmore Girls back when I was in college. So <laughs> I, I mean, I have loved this series forever. Huge fan. I've got my Hep Alien shirt on, which your listeners cannot see, but I will let you know I am a big fan. And I tried to convince Rachel to watch the show. And Rachel, something you will not know about her until I tell you this, she is very stubborn and she would not watch it until finally. And I said, you, there's so much here. You've got two girls, like you, I, you'll love it. There's all this pop culture stuff. And she finally couldn't resist me and watched it and fell in love. And so we were trying to decide what we wanted to work on our next project. And I said, after having, I'd done the Breaking Bad book. And I said, there's only one other series that I know even better than that one. And that is Gilmore Girls. And she was like, mm. I'm all in. So, all in. <laughs> And here you are on I Am All In. I'm stubborn. And Laura is very patient because she waited for me to watch this show for so long. And for me to get, I think I needed my girls to get to an age where they wanted to watch the show with me. And then when I did, Oh my gosh, it just landed on me so hard. And Laura, I could, we were talking on the phone and I could see her smile just growing and she was waiting for that moment. Okay. So you're hooked. We're writing a book. <laughs> All right. So let me, let me ask you the big question right at the top. Why is the show such a cultural staple for TV fans? <sighs> because, I, well, I think Stars Hollow is kind of this bubble mm -hmm. and you can have these crazy, kooky, off the wall personalities and just genuine affection for one another and community. You have mm -hmm. these witty pop culture references. And I think you've gotten into this in a lot of your episodes in the podcast is like every time you watch it, there's something new. Right. Like every time you make different connections. And I think there's just something about being able to go back and visit it. I, I always say Stars Hollow is my happy place. <laughs> and I think mm -hmm. if I actually live there, it might drive me crazy. But I love visiting and mm -hmm. it just the relationships are important. I don't know. Everything just is. It's sort of this beautiful package. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rachel, what do you, how do you feel about that? I would just add that I think, you know, one comforting aspect of the show. Every time I watch one of the shows that has um, uh, a town meeting and the town meeting's full and some people are annoyed, some people are falling asleep, some people are enjoying it. But the fact is that all the, the people are there. And I think that's something that we are missing, at least I'm missing in, in some of my communities that I've lived in, is just to have all of these people that come together for the benefit of their community that care so much about their community. And I think that's what um, I love about, or, or what a lot of people love about Stars Hollow in particular. The you know, that, 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 that is an interesting observation because uh, the town hall meeting really roots the show in history in American history, because you can see going back to the 1800s and 1700s, even the 1600s, um, um, you know, people having those same types of meetings about mm -hmm. what's going to go on in that town. And will they, you know, that, you know, the, you know, this, this, will these horses continue to leave their droppings here and we've got to do something <laughs> that's affecting mm -hmm. the chicken coop and <laughs> whatever. Um, that's a very, very interesting observation. It really does link, um, the show toward, uh, you know, and it's an historic, 
uh, town as well. So yeah. that's no and surprise. One of our chapters in the book is just about that phenomenon. Like, what is it about Stars Hollow that is so appealing? And one, uh, a couple of things that we wrote about is that for one, Stars Hollow is kind of untouched by commercialism. We're not seeing mm. any Starbucks or Applebee's or, you know, whatever. Um, we have all of these mom and pop shops. And then also just the idea that, you know, one thing that we think um, might be reflected in this in Stars Hollow is the idea that there, there's been a loss of small townness in American culture. And so maybe Stars Hollow is one way that we're kind of satisfying that need for community and, and smallness and, and, in our towns in which we live. Couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I'm all about small towns. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So let's get into, and, and, and that is why people talk about stars hollow as a, a very, very important character in the show. Maybe the most important character in the show, because what, what, a, what, what a backdrop, you know, mm -hmm. to, to bounce everything yeah. off of. Um, so yeah, all modernity invading and how, how conflicting and how funny that can be. And, and hence, you know, the tone of the show, what, so let's talk about the mother daughter relationship. I know you <laughs> want to get into that. So what are your thoughts on, uh, on on the the Lorelai Rory relationship. I think that is why there are so many viewers of different ages that find something because it's like the Rory Lorelai relationship, but also the Lorelai Emily relationship and the Emily Rory relationship and the Mrs. Kim and Lane relation. Like there's all these mother daughter dynamics that just can appeal to everyone, right? Like my mom mm. watched the show, Rachel's daughters watched the show. We sort of spanning generations who absolutely love watching that. And I think we get into this, you know, that I'm always fascinated by people that are like, I want to be like, you know, Rory and Lorelai with my daughter or whatever, or my mother. And it's like their relationship was dysfunctional in a lot of ways. Like it was, mm -hmm. it was meant to be kind of, you know, not perfect, imperfect, um, which right, I think is right. also a comfort because they cared about each other so much, even if it wasn't perfect. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. Laura, you said that beautifully. I the only thing I would add is, you know, speaking to what Laura was talking about is how it appeals to different generations and where you're at at different stages in your life. I remember my mom just recently telling me that she was drawn to the show when it first came out because of the representation of Lorelai as a single mother, which was something, um, and and not just the representation of a single mother, but one that is without shame about that kind of status. And my mom was in a a similar situation and she loved that there was um a brilliant funny witty single mother who um who she, you know she she could see in a situation similar to her own so that mm -hmm. it's one thing i think that the the show did really well too so in a way lorelei was a real touchstone for all mothers and especially all single mothers and especially all daughters of single mothers or daughters that wish their fathers wouldn't be there <laughs> Um, because she went through life saying everything that every mother married or single wishes they had said, because she's basically going through life, uh, as a stand up comic and yeah. making light <laughs> and making fun and being irreverent and yeah. being hysterically funny and being herself and being, yeah. and, and keeping her power all at the same time. And I think too, unapologetically herself, I think maybe mm -hmm. that's what I was trying to say with the, right same piece right just 
yeah, just her authentic being. And that's okay. I wish I could live my life like Lorelai as a stand-up comedian. I'm not that quick on my feet. Right, right, right. But and you're right. And the, it's so <laughs> aspirational in that regard because I think, yeah, I think yeah. it's one of the things I take away from the show. It's like, boy, can you imagine going through life like that? How fun would that be uh, to have that kind of a brain that's yeah. going to be so quippy and so clever and so immediate, like boom, boom, mm-hmm. boom, boom, all the time. Mm-hmm. The fast and the funnies all the time in every situation. And I think- Emily is very similar. I mean, one, I think, you know, that is where I see Lorelai getting her wit and humor. I think Emily, if, I mean, her delivery is very different than Lorelai's, not necessarily as a, you know, a stand-up comedian, but oh my gosh, so many laugh out loud moments with Emily. She's so, I I love that dynamic, uh, Emily Mm -hmm. and Lorelai. Her values sort of come from a different place, but even Emily's friends say, "Oh, you're you're quick like your mother." And a lot of the lines we pulled out best line for every single episode. It's in the back of the book, and a lot uh, of the lines are Emily's, as much as they uh, are Lorelai's or the rest of the town. Like everyone got yes. good lines, which is, yes. I think, really important. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, "To Live and Die in LA." I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men... How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. 
tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can you go through the topics that the book covers? Yeah. So we look at relationships. The first part of the book looks at the relationships. We look at the mother daughter dynamic. Um, we look at fatherhood and representations like with Luke and Richard um, and Christopher, because, you know, he was this really important father figure, although inconsistent, it was a, you know, sort of a huge mm-hmm. part of the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at friendship and then we look at feminism in the show and how the show really deals with that and how Amy Sherman Palladino had talked about how she wanted it to deal with it. Um, And then we look at popular culture and the value of talking about popular culture. We look at issues of class because that's a huge theme. Huge. I mean, it's, it's the undercurrents Mm -hmm. why Laura likes to ran. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the small town living. It's also why she hasn't really changed that much. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, no, that's mm-hmm. true. Yeah. yeah, the tension between the the classes and her living in a place that doesn't really recognize that. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. just a brilliant, it's a brilliant, brilliant jumping off point, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It really is. I mean, if you were going to conceive a show, you know, that would. I mean, and you said how? Because because what what do writers do when they're creating drama or they're creating comedy? They have to create tension. Mm-hmm. So what br- brilliant, brilliant uh, way to configure some characters and uh, just, it just all works. I mean, it works right away. Yeah. yeah. And starting in season one, you start to get that tension where Lorelai ran so far away from it. And now Rory's inching her way back and she, Lorelai cannot wrap her head around it. She doesn't know how to feel about it. And it's complicated. It's the relationship with her parents, but it's also just that life. And you see that throughout every season. She starts dating Logan. She starts, you know, sort of um, when she, when um, Rory gets out of that limo after the party, after Dean breaks up with her and she's wearing the diamonds and she's like, clearly had a little bit to drink. And she, you know, and Lorelai's just looking out the window. It's just the saddest because it was not what she wanted for her daughter. Yeah, but it's maybe what she wanted for herself and what yes. she missed out on. Yes. yes. And the tension constantly is it that she feels like maybe she didn't want to run so far from that life. She like went too far to extremes, which would totally fit with Lorelai because she's, you know, she's not perfect. She makes pretty extreme choices, right? So Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah, we we were just discussing the uh her marriage proposal to Luke. So so let's talk <laughs> a little bit about the Luke and and, and Lorelai dynamic here. Do you, do you go into the, you talk discuss that. Discuss that. We love Luke. <laughs> I'm telling each other, do not call him Luke. His name is Scott. Do not. 
Yes. Uh, and before I forget, Scott, I wanted to tell you, I promised my um, my youngest daughter is 18. Her name is Ivy. And she wanted me to tell you that Luke is her favorite character because um, Luke reminds her of her dad, which my husband, John. And also she um, loves the the sarcasm and, and your your humor, Luke's humor. Mm, so mm. shout out to Ivy. Hi, hi Ivy. Uh, appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, I've watched the series now. I'm probably on my 12th viewing of it. I kind of keep it on in the background. So it's kind of, you know, always going. But I was watching it recently. And I think there's this episode, um, the eight o'clock at the Oasis episode, where Richard calls Lorelai and he's like, you have to fix this situation. You got to go on that second date with Peyton played by John Hamm, right? Like you have to fix this. He's like, your mother did not get the first cup of tea. And they go back and forth and she's like, this is insane. And he goes, of course it's insane. Like this is insane. But my wife wants that tea. She's getting the first cup of tea. So we're going to fix this. And I think it occurred to me that it was beautiful. Like that's the most romantic moment. They have like this love where he's just like, I know it's crazy, but I'm going to make it happen for her. And I think Luke does that for Lorelai. Mm-hmm. I think he consistently realizes that what she wants is sometimes crazy and wacky. And she like, you know, has all these sort of zany ideas and he makes it happen. He builds mm-hmm. an ice skating rink and he creates a fishing pond and he bakes a cake for her daughter. And, you know, like he just, he's there for her. And even if it's, not something he understands fully. He is there to help her. And so I think that's why their relationship is just so fun to watch and uh-huh. so romantic. Uh-huh. It's so romantic. And I love the, um, the the slowness over the seasons of how it evolves and changes um, and how tension is, is created. I just, I love from the very first episode, how Luke, um, you know, portrays this like, um, protective, um, you know, protective persona over both Rory and Lorelai. Um, one of my favorite episodes is when Luke rents or buys the um, the self help tapes about love and tries tries to hide them, but then he mm-hmm. sees Lorelai's face and then he's like, "Whoa!" <laughs> is oh, I just love it. Love, yes, I love that relationship. And one thing I think is really cool. And was distinct about Luke and Lorelai's relationship um, as opposed to Lorelai and some of her other suitors was, I think, Luke bridged both um, like passionate love and companionate love. So there was something it wasn't just that um, romantic side, but then there was also the 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 long term companionate aspect of their relationship. Right. They, They knew how to relax and hang with each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't all needy all the time. Yeah, <laughs> you're talking about two pretty um, rebellious individuals who are really rooted in their individuality coming together and not yeah. sort of trying to invade each other's territory all the time. So there's a lot of still a lot of tension there, too. And there's like mm-hmm. that class element to it because he ain't from the upper rungs, mm-hmm. is he? So, um, <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting dynamic, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really was. Um, let's look at it from i mean you brought up this feminist angle right uh and amy sherman palladino obviously steeped this show in feminism and uh talk about that as it relates to luke and lorelei's relationship and one thing in uh, specifically is that she proposed to him and how that sort of turned this all on its head 
Um, so talk about the feminist aspect first and how it affects that relationship. Yeah, well, I think the show does a really good job. We sort of talk about it in the book as like being very representative of contemporary feminism at the time. I think we've seen a, a bit of a shift post like Weinstein Me Too situation. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, these conversations were kind of couched. We talked about it, you know, um, but I think sort of this idea of bad feminism, Roxane Gay, she's a, a feminist who brought up this idea of bad feminism and that there's not just this one way to be feminist. And so I think although Lorelai is very independent, I think she relies on Luke a lot. And I think that's part of her journey is figuring out how to let someone into her life and why it's such a slow build, but like let someone into her life and be a partner for her because she really sort of embraced this, like, it's just me and my daughter and I'm going to make this work. And she did a great job with it. But then her daughter goes off to school and has a life and season four is all about her trying to figure out like, now what is she going to do with her life? You know? So I think the show really plays with the tensions of feminism where we do it's It's not this idea of radical feminism. It's how do we do feminism in everyday life? And I think Luke was a great counterpart because he was both masculine but also very compassionate in his own way. Mm-hmm. And I love that she proposed and then you'll get into, you know, in season six, when you guys start covering that, like there's a bit of tension there for him where the town is kind of questioning, like, oh, she proposed, right? Like, and he has to kind of deal with that and figure out like, okay, how do I feel about this? No, I'm fine with it, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I, I think their dynamic together sort of highlights any kind of, I don't know, tensions with that. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, have, I have stated previously that I had a problem with her proposing to Luke um, um, because it was coming from a really greedy kind of actor place where I wanted to play those scenes and I didn't get a chance mm-hmm. to. You know what I mean? I, I think that's really all it is. Anyway, Rachel, go ahead and chime in. Oh, I was just going to actually shift just a tiny bit. The other um, part in our book where we're talking about feminism is in the friendship chapter, which is was really interesting um, to us and for Laura and I to to flesh this out. But, you know, typically what we, you know, at this time would have seen in um, the portrayal of women is women in competition with each other, um, you know, women not very nice to each other, women not supporting each other. So one very refreshing aspect that we saw um, reflections of feminism and is uh, all of these wonderful female friendships and supporting each other and um, and supporting so that the emphasis isn't always on romantic relationships, but also in these these very functional female friendships between mm-hmm. different women. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lorelai and her mother were at odds so often. Uh, did you ever think as fans watching the show and thinking about it uh, uh, post viewing uh, that Lorelai had crossed the line uh, into into insanity and <laughs> complete uh, uh, not appreciate what her mother was trying to do or what her father was trying to do to talk about that a little bit? I mean, I think Amy Sherman Palladino and Daniel Palladino, I think they they have so many episodes where we can sympathize with Emily. I think Lorelai is very well positioned as an unreliable narrator. She reacts emotionally very quickly. She doesn't always think things through and she thinks she's right. 
And I think this the um, scene where she just goes storming into Emily's house with Max Medina and is like, how couldn't you, you don't care that I'm getting married. You're so cold. And Emily finally turns around and she's like, I know how you feel. How would you feel if a stranger told you your daughter was getting married? You know? And mm-hmm. it's like, you feel for Emily in that moment. Not Laura. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Couldn't she just tell her, right? I mean, obviously conflict for the show, but mm-hmm. I think that she's a very sympathetic character in a lot of ways while also being very frustrating as a mother and sort of, you, you can see both sides of it a lot of times. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, and the one mm-hmm. where Lorelai writes the letter, Dear Emily and Richard, yeah. oh. episode is just, yeah. you just want to give Emily a hug and be like, that must have been yeah. like torture, you know? So, Rachel, why do you think tr- Trixie was <laughs> cri- kryptonite to Emily? Why did Emily lose all her powers around Trixie? And why? Oh, let's, yeah. So, talk about that i love so trixie's in maybe three episodes right and i love yeah yeah the dynamic um that she brings in because i think in those moments we're seeing i think uh, emily in the place of lorelei um you know we we wrote about you know that kind of um back and forth and you know one thing that i have that i really loved in one of the episodes that laura just talked about um, dear Emily and Richard, Trixie is not in there. So I'm deviating just a little bit. Um, but the way in which the show plays with identification with Emily, I think is really, really smart, especially in those, those moments when we're getting the backstory of Emily and we're seeing, you know, we're starting to kind of understand and, and explain some of her terrible behaviors uh, towards Lorelai and it starts to, to kind of click with viewers they think and make sense and I think Trixie also does that so we're starting to build some sympathy we're seeing Emily in a very different role not as you know the Lorelai's mom but as a daughter-in-law herself mm. Laura I know you have stuff to say about Trixie too yeah no I know I thought you that was great like I think I it's fascinating because she's in that position and yet she doesn't recognize how she does the same things to Laura. So you're just like, Oh, we're not learning here. Right. But that's, that's part of the, I don't know, the appeal and the fact that Trixie does like Lorelai and values, you know, gives her some validation for all that she's accomplished, I think is, was really important. Mm -hmm. And complicates as well. Like the, the arrangements between and the connections that, um, that, that Emily is trying to maintain in order to stay connected with Lorelai and mm-hmm. Roy. Where do you guys fall on this um, this uh, season end of season five? Uh, Rory going to living in the pool house at Grandma's house and dropping out of Yale. I think it was incredibly important. It needed mm-hmm. to happen. Um, and it's funny because when you rewatch the series over and over, you catch these moments. And in I think it's the pilot or the first, you know, the second episode, Suki says to Lorelai, now, you know, as Rory's about to go to Chilton, right? Like still early. Um, now you guys can have a normal mother-daughter relationship where you fight and you, you know, you have that. And they still didn't really get there until this moment. They had fights, but this is like a oh, fight and they have to figure it out separately. Um and I think it was an incredibly important moment. It is like torture to watch those, though, 
because mm-hmm. so much of the relate the, so much of the show is their relationship. So you're kind of in limbo. I love being able to binge them because I can just get through those and back to where they're together again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. As a viewer, it's so frustrating those months. I think it's like in the, the narrative of the show, it's five months maybe that they're that they're separated. But then their reunification is one of my favorite moments of the show because I feel like, okay, Lorelai putting all of these topics of conversations, like things I need to talk to Rory about when we come back together. That's me. I was like, I'm going to steal that in case I ever have any falling out with my, with my children, but it's just such a beautiful coming together moment after that. And I agree with, um, with Laura is that as we were writing about that, I think I came to understand and appreciate that part of the show more than as a viewer being frustrated. I think it was, it was necessary. And I think also it, it was, um, now that I'm entering into empty nester, um, stage like I'm appreciating that that part of the show and Lorelai really figuring out who she is without Rory because you know I'm learning that your role as parent like I feel like I need a parenting book just a parent uh you know adult mm-hmm. children and so that's a really interesting um you know phase that the show that the show presents us with but it is, it, it is, gosh, you know, it's such a powerful uh, theme running through this is that everybody knows what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. We know nobody's going to die, but we do know that Rory is going to grow up. We do know that yeah. she's going to go off to school. We do know that she's going to graduate. We do know that she's going to st- start her own life and isn't that really something to watch that mm-hmm. separating from her mom when they were so they mm-hmm. started off so close and then now that's drifting apart that is that is a powerful magnet for an audience it really is yeah and it's real too you know that so those real, are real yeah. things that yeah. happen well i think it was really important Lorelai stood firm. She has to figure mm-hmm. this out on her own. She has to make these mistakes. And Luke was like, we got to go get her. We got to go kidnap her. We got to talk to her. Right. And it's like, <laughs> no, you're going to have to figure this out. And she's going to make some major mistakes while she does this. And it has to happen. And then right before they get back together. Oh, wait, have you, you haven't gotten there. I don't want to, I don't want to, <laughs> that's in season no, six. Please, please don't please. I, have yeah, not, I, don't I, have not, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it. That's okay. That's okay. But, uh, all right, so let's get into uh, Rory's relationships. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, discuss. You know <laughs> the Deans, the Jesses, the Logans. Talk about those dynamics and what they did or didn't do for Rory. Well, I do want to say we were pretty anti-Logan in our book, and I think we both could say that <laughs> perhaps we were a little aggressive mm. with that. I feel like uh-huh, uh-huh. I sort of understand where that comes from. Like, Rory really experiences all the tropes of romantic novels. She gets Dean, <laughs> the jock slash motorcycle driver. He was kind of, he kind of, his personality shifted a bit by season two. Then right. she gets Jess, who's like the bad boy, but super smart. And the only one that could really understand what, you know, her level of intelligence. And then she goes on to Logan, who's like this millionaire. It's every trope and she gets to experience it. So I do want to say if anyone reads our book, I'm a little less 
anti-Logan, even though he was my least favorite choice for Rory. And I Mm. think Rachel probably, we've talked about it a few times that perhaps we were a little aggressive in our Mm anti-Logan sentiments in the book. Um, But yeah, I think, I think when Rory dates Jess and Luke's like, are we okay with this? Like, is this, are you okay with it? Right. Cause you know, she really did not want that to happen. And she says, I think it's about time for a Jess. And it's like, yes, that's, you have to kind of figure out who is your partner, right? Like who is, who are you compatible with? It's Mm -hmm. not always going to be the same. And I think the parallels between Dean and Luke and Christopher and Logan, like Dean is not the one for her, even though Luke Mm -hmm. is the one for Lorelai, you know, and Jess bring something really important for her. He's my favorite. I am totally team Jess, but I don't think he's the best fit for her. He is, he just doesn't give her what she needs. I don't think Logan's the right fit, but clearly later in life, she, you know, maybe continues that path. So. Yeah. That's the acid test for me with Logan. Cause I, I very fond of Logan. And I think he's super smart and I think he does give her what he needs. But the thing is the acid test is 10 years from now when they're married, they have a couple of kids and he's running the, the empire his daddy's empire. Um, is he going to cheat on her? Do you see him cheating on her? And I kind of do. Is Rory going to cheat on him? I mean, yeah. she's a pretty complicated character and it's, yeah, it's, mm. it's not necessarily sunshine mm. and roses for everyone. Mm. Right. Rachel, what did you said in the book that you wanted her to choose herself? So <laughs> she had a very different. Well, I was going to say that also that if I had to choose, I'm definitely team Jess. But in our book, um, we end that chapter with the possibility of a fourth option, and that is Marty. That's right. <laughs> right. Who's probably the best guy for her. <laughs> he's yeah. Mr. Reliable. Yeah. 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 He's going to make, he's always going to make a good living. He's always, he's going to get a teaching position at a smaller college. Um, <laughs> and he's going to be the steady, he's going to be steady, steady, steady guy. He's going to love her. He's going to worship her. It's going to be a great life for those two, but she just doesn't get that uh, spark from him, you know? So yeah. Mm. Yeah. I know. I've seen it all before. That way. Yeah. (laughs) Seen it all before. (laughs) This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. 
and you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents she's got all of these maseratis and bentleys all in the driveway is it like a mansion yes it's a mansion that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich man because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts What was your favorite part of the series? I do just absolutely adore the female friendships, especially between Lorelai and Suki. I just, I love Melissa McCarthy and I just love what she did with that character. Um, but I just love that that was an aspect of the show. It wasn't just focused on, you know, a romantic relationship. But my favorite part, did you say favorite moment or favorite part? of the series or favorite part of the series. Yeah. Favorite okay. Part of I love Kirk's short film that they play. I think it's season two and it's uh -huh. at the stars hollow movie sure. festival. I love when Lorelai thinks she's going to be able to choose a film. And she, um, she, um, I think references Fletch and Arthur, which makes me laugh every time. And Sophie's choice as well. But then when we get to see Kirk's film, that I just thought the show is so smart. I I just I loved it. I rewatch it frequently. Kirk's right. short film. <laughs> right, right. Um Laura, one last uh idea here. What was so distinct about this show compared to other shows during that time, two thousand, two thousand seven? I mean, I think even on the network that it was on, the very first, the pilot episode, Lorelai says to Rory, like, I had dibs on being the B tonight, right? Like, you did not see that on any yeah. shows that were airing on a family network. And it was just a very real representation of how people actually talk to each other, not these sappy moments. And I think that was one of the comments that Amy Sherman Palladino made was like, I didn't love the close-ups. I didn't want the emotional, mm -hmm. like sad thing. It was about making tragic figures funny. 
And I think I watch it every time and I'm like, they are, they've got these tragic stories, all of them. And yet it is so funny. So I think it was, it was, I've never come across another show like it. Somebody will say it's like Gilmore Girls and I always watch it and I'm like, "Eh, nope. (laughs) Good. It's fine. But it's not, don't say it's like Gilmore Girls because you just can't do it. Even Marvelous Miss Maze. I mean, that's a totally different thing, right? It's, Mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it just, it's sort of on its own. So yeah. And I would just add to that too, just the, the, quantity and the quality of the pop culture references I think keeps people coming back to the show because and there's a, someone a scholar that reported in the pop culture chapter that it's not so highbrow references where it's like condescending to the audience some of the references I know and when I know them I'm so proud of myself and I feel really yeah. good but uh-huh. then the other references, I'm like, I'm going to go look that up because Lorelai is super cool. And I want to know, I want to read what she's reading or I want to watch what she's watching. Right. And right. I don't know how Amy did that. Like, I don't know how she created just very carefully these um, pop culture references that um, that keeps people coming back. I mean, still, when I rewatch it now, I, I write down, oh, I, I need to look up who you know, whoever, whatever. Mm-hmm, I need mean, to look mm-hmm. at this movie. It's mm-hmm. cannot catch everything, which was yeah. very difficult when we were writing this book. <laughs> right. Try to gather mm-hmm. evidence. Type <laughs> as we're watching the episodes. <laughs> it's tough. Uh, well, I can tell you they're the type of uh, couple that goes on a vacation and they, they take a hundred books with them. Uh, <laughs> that's what they do on vacation. They read. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Does yeah, that yeah. surprise me? No, right. So, but yeah, I, I agree with you. That's 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 the very special special sauce of the show. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's all the time we have. We got to have you back on the show. It's a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank uh, you, Rachel Thank Davidson, you. Lara Stage. The book is the Gilmore Girls: A Cultural History. Go out and get yourself a copy. Uh, thank you, ladies, so much, and uh, hopefully, talk soon. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Forget follow us on Instagram at I am all in podcast and email us at Gilmore at iHeartRadio.com. All summer, the best time of the year usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there was another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. At IKEA, everyone can have lounge chair access. No reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, they have all of the essentials that you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget.
Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.